Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today's guest is thriller writer Marta Sprout. David Farland wrote of her, There are a lot of fine thriller writers, but few are as thrilling as Marta Sprout. When not writing, she loves skiing big mountains, scuba diving, and snorkeling with 40-foot whale sharks. She teaches at the police academy and has done training scenarios with cadets and SWAT. In addition to the pursuit of an accurate and credible story, the bond she has with law enforcement, military, and firefighters comes from a deep respect for those who put themselves in harm's way to protect total strangers. She has one personal story that rocked her world that set the direction of her life, which we will discuss a bit later in this podcast. Welcome, Marta. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So we're here at Superstars, and it's a conference with about 250 people here. And I met Marta uh, yesterday, and um, just after a few minutes, just listening to her talk at a, at a meeting we were at, just, I've got to meet this woman. <laughs> and then she was so kind to loan me a book, which... Um, Maybe it was right, maybe the wrong thing to do at a conference because I left some of the different meetings so I can go read it to prepare for this because it's, it's amazing. What Dave said with her as a, as a thriller writer is absolutely true. Just check this out. This is the opening sentence in the first paragraph of her book, Island of Bones. Swimming in the ocean wasn't the problem. The big hands holding her underwater were the issue. I mean, what the heck? Is this like... Is this the start of a, of a murder mystery, like this, this woman's being killed, now you're going to find out, or, or what happens? And I found out what happened after I read the rest of that initial chapter, and now I'm just like hooked on her writing. So I guess we'll talk about this book first, since that's what I just opened up with. So sure. where'd you come up with this idea? It's like, I know that Lee Child raves about your heroine on this one, the, the main character, Kate Bowers. So... How did this evolve? Well, I, I look for a fun place to have a story unfold. And you don't get as quirky, crazy, or beautiful as Key West. <laughs> so I thought, this would be kind of fun. And there's a deeper human side to the story. Um, John Silbersack said to me, Marta, you put more humanity in a thriller than I've ever seen, and you don't slow down the pace. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> um, so I, I bring the reader behind the eyeballs of this main character to experience what she goes through. Because you meet her in the first book as a detective, and she stepped away from that, trying to figure out, like we all are, where we fit in this world. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't do boring <laughs> and so I figured we should jump right in to the meat of the story uh, where she's assaulted. And, of course, she's not going to put up with that. And now the game Evidently is on. not. No. And now <laughs> the game is on. Um, so I picked the location. I picked some things that are a natural outgrowth of her personality, but also things that we all deal with, those sort of universal things that we all struggle with. And she does, too. So she's, so she's so relatable in those ways. And like us, her greatest strengths sometimes are also her greatest weaknesses. So that's, that's amazing on that. Now, with Kate, 
-hmm. And after reading your bio, is there is this any autobiographical? Oh, I think it is for all of us. I really do. Um, she has a tremendous compassion for others. And without doing any spoilers, there is a breathtaking moment where she has the skill and the opportunity to escape and save herself. But she chooses to stay behind, to stay in the fight to protect others. That is an outgrowth of, I was embedded with SWAT for three days. And I'm watching these men prepare for training scenarios mm -hmm. and some women, uh, which I admire greatly. And I was so impressed. And it wasn't because they're huge. They have massive equipment on them. Um, they are imposing as hell. It wasn't that. I watched these guys checking each other to make sure they're safe, punching each other in the arm, harassing the hell out of each other. And then the reality, that deeper reality hit me. These are people, human beings, that put themselves in danger. They are going out knowing they may not come back to protect total strangers. That is Kate Bowers. And I admire people who do that. Mm -hmm. And... I've been in ski patrol. I've been in some very harrowing situations in my life, and it resonates with me. And uh, so there's, that's, that's a big undercurrent in all of my stories. That's a really, from my perspective and what we do with Writers of the Future, it's, it's important for me, and it's also for the stories. I don't know how familiar you are with Owen Hubbard as an author. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of his stories, he has, um, Robert Heinlein said, you work out, you create a different storyline. It's the man that learned better. Yes. And you've got someone who's not necessarily on the right side of the law, who's not necessarily doing the right thing, comes to some type of crossroads and then makes the right decision. Right. And that's how the, the outcome of the story is. He doesn't have the profanity, he doesn't have the sex, he just has really mm -hmm. good storytelling that pulls you along, which, like I said, just... When I read the first sentence, like, oh, gosh, I can't put this down now. <laughs> I got to keep going here. But that's a, that's a mindset that I think is really important, especially in today's age when yes. a person has access, when youth or anybody has access to such specious morality yes. um, and that type of stuff. And it's just, that's not my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. And so I won't do that on this, on this podcast. I'll... You know, the grit that obviously, you know, Kate Bowers must deal with. And mm -hmm. that opening scene is like, <clears throat> I mean, that was very gritty, very real, very yeah. like, oh, my gosh. But the underlying integrity, which I think is so important to get out there that people can really enjoy a good story, but see that you can actually have a great life and maintain one's integrity. Oh, absolutely. And I try to put characters in the story. Um, who are like us, uh, ordinary people that are in an unusual situation or have hit even hard times. Um, there's a sign above my desk, it's a quote from C.S. Lewis, and that you mentioned integrity. It says, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one's looking. And 
And I wholeheartedly believe in that. That doesn't mean that we don't make mistakes. Right. So characters make mistakes, but they're trying or they're lost and they learn. And all the conundrums we see in life today come to life in the characters in mm. this book. And there's another side of it in that uh, Kate faces stares evil in the eye and refuses to back down. And um, my life experiences shook me a bit. And it, it did. You said it changed the course of my life. It did. And the wonderful thing about this book and all of the books is that we all face this kind of thing, horrible things that we see in our world. What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. What are we going to do if we were in, the, in her footsteps? What would we do? And today I think sometimes people feel helpless because they're faced with things they know they can't change. But the hope, there's a lot of hope and humor. Yes, I, I, it's a thriller. Mm -hmm. I deal full on with evil, grit, horrible things. But there's also humor and there's also hope. So um, you will always find that in right. my books. And you will find a little bit of surprise. I always leave the last scene or a few scenes or even last paragraph, something for readers that make them go, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> and then they go, oh, of course, it makes perfect sense. And that's just my little gift. That's awesome. So how many books, is, is this a series, this thing? Yes. Smart? Okay, so... With uh, Kate Brown. So how many books are in this series with Kate Bowers? Uh, right now there are two. The third one is in process. The first book is Kill Notice, which is a fascinating book. Um, I don't do the Hollywood thing and just make up stuff for dramatic effect. Mm -hmm. All right. So with Island of Bones, I spent the better part of a week inside the FBI with the behavioral analysis unit was very enlightening. And I also spent time with Mary Ellen O'Toole, who taught me volumes. And I was trying to understand the criminal mind. Oh, you just need to, to watch The Dark Knight and watch how Joker works. There you go. <laughs> there you, you go. You got it. And so Kill Notice is really about what it, a real psychopath is like. And it is so accurate at... It's actually scary, even scarier than big, snarling monsters, because a true psychopath is charming. He's the guy next door. He has a wife and a family and a really good job. Is it like Silence of the Lambs type thing? No, it's not. It's more subtle. Wow. But it makes it more insidious. Sure, sure. And when you, you don't even know who who the psychopath is till you're well into the novel and then you go, oh my gosh. And then when you see him flip into his real personality, it is bone chilling and you get to watch Kate stand up to that. And so it's, it's it, yeah, it's really, it was quite interesting to do that. Um, this, this one takes another direction, big political issues. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to interview and work with people in the trenches. So um, there's a lot of crazy things. Um, if 
Kate Bowers uses a weapon. That means I've gone to the firing range with our range master at the police department, and I've shot that weapon too, because I, I need to know how it works, how it functions, when and how it's used. So mm-hmm. it's realistic. Right. Um, I will spend. I spend a ridiculous amount of time <laughs> with police officers and FBI agents, um, Secret Service, Homeland Security. I've got one resource at CIA. And for this book, I spent a lot of time with the Navy SEAL. And much like that SWAT officer I told you about, mm-hmm. when people do these kinds of jobs, there's a sacrifice made that changes their personality, that changes who they are, because it's that impactful. Mm-hmm. And they have to learn to deal with that. And it was fascinating. He, and he said, I'm all for the greater good, and I won't change. But there's a lot of sacrifice. Freedom isn't free. And um, so I spent time with him. I spent time with the Coast Guard. I also spent time with a man who was the commander of the naval base where I live. And I put out the scenario for the climax and a map. And I showed him what was going to happen, and the goosebumps went up on his arms. And he said, oh, my gosh, Marta, this could really happen. This is so accurate. So I, I pushed for that for credibility's sake mm-hmm. because there's a lot of things in, that we see in media and stuff like that that's inventive, it's creative, um, but it's not realistic at all. And people in the field won't watch it because it annoys them. Right. But my books, somebody who is in the Navy— Military, law enforcement, whatever can read my books and they come back and say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So I try to get that credibility in there. But I'm a stickler about a few things. I do training scenarios, so I'm privy to a lot of tactical stuff. I don't put that in the books because I don't want to educate criminals. And I do it because I don't use my resources. I honor them for the work they do by writing good books that are accurate. And, um, but the thing is, I think in a story, any story, any genre, and I would encourage writers developing their craft, any good story is about humanity. Mm -hmm. Now, you need to do the world building. And you need all the sights and sounds and smells and crackles and, and feelings and all these what we call emotional beats, certainly. But you really need the humanity of that person to shine through because that's where the real story is. That's what people can relate to. Exactly. Yeah. So I always have the reader in mind because this is for the reader. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. It's interesting to talk about the research and, and that you don't go and put out, okay, this is the tactics that they do it because you don't want to educate the criminal. But at the same time, by having that understanding, the credibility of your story right. is so much stronger. There was a, there's a whole essay that on, on research that, um, that Mr. Hubbard wrote where he talked about a story he wrote about the Coast Guard. Mm-hmm. Because he himself was a Navy man, and so he, was, he wrote Navy stories, and it was like, 
I've had a lot of people right now in the Navy that read him and go like, wow, I love his Navy stories because it's so, obviously he knows what he's talking about. He was a captain. He was a captain mm -hmm. in, the, in the World War II. But okay, I'll just whip this one off on the Coast Guard. And it didn't sell. It didn't, they didn't buy it. And it's just, he didn't do his research on it. He didn't uh, find out how's the Coast Guard different than the Navy. Very different. <clears throat> and so, yeah. So he went and he, he then went and met with the Coast Guard, met with the officers, met with, went on, went on the, the, the boats there to see how they operated, what size of guns they were, how they used them, the whole yes. thing. They're the looking for the, the smugglers and the, mm -hmm. you know, the things that, were, that they would have to deal with on, on the East Coast. And then he rewrote the story and it sold immediately and did really, really well. But just, it's not that he said, okay, this is how you do this. It's just this story now became real. It, this is, it becomes a, real. Yeah. You are so right. Um, the Coast Guard has a special division called Hitron, and I researched that. The helicopters used, the weaponry used, is spot-on accurate. And what that allows me to do certainly gives the story credibility, mm -hmm. but it's more than that. What you're doing... Okay, if I were doing science fiction and fantasy, I would call it world-building. In a thriller, what I'm doing is taking readers behind the scenes into places they never get to see. And they see a new whole environment and how it functions and how it works. And it's fascinating. And so, yeah. you see, that I'm, I'm it, it is, and it's just like when you do it, having done the homework, and unfortunately, they're all, they've been weaned by Hollywood with mm -hmm. either the favorite, you know, TV Right. detective story or whatever movie they've right, seen. So right. that's how it is. Yeah. And it isn't how and it, it is. And it isn't how it is it at is all. It is not how it is, right. you know. Right. Somewhere it's more important that the cut of the suit looks good from this angle in the right. camera or you've got to have your beard that's one-eighth of an inch long and you've got mm -hmm. to have this or that, the other thing. Oh, sure. Which makes the, the optimum police detective, right. you know. I actually find a lot of the TV shows I see and stuff comical. They don't mean them to be that way. Right. But when I see a female detective clomping into a warehouse at night in stilettos with a defensive weapon and she has no idea who's inside I'm, and no backup, I'm like, uh, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong here, you know? Or Hollywood loves to photograph someone with a semi-automatic pistol held parallel to their head, N nobody walks around like that, you know? I mean, you just don't do that. And but you can't get a close-up any other way. Yeah, right. They're going for visuals. Mm -hmm. And the wonderful thing about writing novels in the written word, even put into audio, if you use all the senses in your writing, you know, and that I'm speaking directly to writers working on their craft. If you get all the sensory details in there, you can put the reader right behind the eyeballs of your character, and you get so much more. Yeah, as an author, you've got a hundred million dollar budget. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Whereas a movie might have, okay, I've got $25 million or I've got whatever it is. So you're, right. you've got the money to do 
everything. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's what people are sometimes disillusioned about when Hollywood gets a hold of it and makes a movie out of it. It's like, that's not what I saw in my head. Right. You know? That's true. And you have to keep in mind that a script for a two-hour movie is about 120 pages. Well, this, this book is 500 pages. It's really hard to condense all mm -hmm. of that down into uh, a two-hour movie. Right. You'd have to do three, maybe three and a half to really do it do justice. justice. But then in movie is a craft of its own. Mm -hmm. And they say that, you know, the old saying that a picture is worth a thousand words. If it's done by a very skilled producer and director, you can do beautiful, beautiful sure. things. Even in TV shows where you're, it's segmented, you know. Um, but so, yeah, going back to this, um, people always tell me they feel like they're in the book. They're right there. They can, they can hear the person breathing. They can feel their pulse. They can, they can feel the adrenaline rush, you know? Yeah, just your opening paragraph where you have her underwater and you talk about how you're looking up through the water and you see the, you know, the, the way the sparkle looks there. And it's just, it's very realistic. You're like, yeah, you, you can totally pitch picture yourself, you know, slightly emerged underwater and then what it's like to have the inability to breathe. Oh yeah. You know, and the fear of being held down. It just mm -hmm. it really picks up the right. adrenaline just reading that, you know. So yes, it is very do you use another definition of the word immersive? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. It, 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 I hadn't thought of that. That's really good. <laughs> Wonderful insight. So um so you made reference uh, to an incident that happened right. that kind of like predicated mm -hmm. this or other stories. Sure. Let me talk about that a little bit. So I'm going to date myself a bit, but I grew up in California. When I was a teenager, I drove up to Hollywood for uh, an appointment. And because I always get lost, I left very early before sunrise, and I drove up there, and I got lost because I always get lost. Well, for people on the East Coast or whatever, California, if you get off the highway, you're pretty much into canyons and hills and stuff like that. So I pulled off, and I was in an area where there were hills and trees and houses up on the hills and long driveways and gates and... And I did this thing that a lot of young people today don't know. It's called a map. I pulled it out and put on the dome light, you know, because we didn't have GPS. Right. And uh, long story short, I went home that night, and that driveway was on the television. It was Sharon Tate's house. And I had been there just as the sky was starting to lighten, and Charlie's gang had left, and I was there just before the housekeeper came and discovered the bodies. Now, you can imagine being a teenager, it absolutely rocked your world, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I didn't tell anybody about this for decades. I was terrified Charlie or one of his crew were going to come after me. And she's referring to Charles Manson on this. Charles Manson. Yes. Yeah, we, in California, we always called him Charlie. But I started really paying attention to people and why some people are so good and so kind and other people are so 
nasty. I just couldn't as a teen. That's where mm -hmm. I would have worded it then, right. right? So the road follows, and I begin to study psychology, and I try to understand that because it doesn't make sense to me. So I'm this altruistic person who will take care of a lost puppy, help an elderly person across the road, whatever. And time went on, and I wound up in medicine. Same kind of thing, wanting to help people, right? And so I was on the clinical side. I was on the administrative side. And one day, I got a call from my receptionist. And her voice had this very high pitch in it. And I knew something was wrong. So I walk out in the waiting room, and there is the husband of an employee I had terminated the day before for embezzlement. And he had a gun. And he was starting to blow away everybody in the office. Well, the only thing I could think of was separating him from everybody else. So I took him into my office, and I sat him down in a very calm voice. I said, what do you want, and how can I help you? And people in law enforcement will understand this or anybody that's faced this. That opening at the end of a barrel looks like it's about three feet across when you're staring down the barrel of a gun. I said, well, let me go get him for you. And, of course, the fool said, okay. <laughs> go get who? Go get the doctor. Okay. I want to talk to the doctor, he okay. says to me. I want to talk to the doctor. And I said, okay, I'll go get him for you. So I went out, and of course, I didn't say anything, doctor. I had staff evacuate the building, call 911, all these sort of things. And I came back in, and I said, he's going to, he just finishing up a procedure. He's going to wash up and come in and talk to you. Is that acceptable? Again, giving him the feeling that he's in charge, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, I better. Yeah, he better get in here. Okay. And so I was starting to hear boot, boots in the hallway. And I said to him, I think he's coming. Would you like me to step out and give you a little privacy? And he's, you know, gruff, very gruff. And he said, yes. And, of course, I'm noticing that his pupils are dilated. He's got sweat all over the place. He's jittery as hell. I know he's high as a kite mm -hmm. and very unpredictable. So my first introduction to SWAT. I opened the door to my office, and it was like being sucked out of the room. <laughs> Somebody grabbed me and just yanked me out. And then I'm hearing crash, bang, shouts of get on the ground, drop the weapon, you know, hands in your head, put your hands behind your back, you know, all this kind of stuff. And the guy came out in handcuffs. Nobody was hurt, except my desk. There was a, a pretty good scar across the top of my get desk, but I figured that was a badge of honor. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody got hurt. So you asked me about being autobiographical. I've learned to stand up against evil, just like Kate has, mm -hmm. you know. And so I went from medicine into ski patrol and other venues like that, and eventually I realized that I have always been a writer. I just didn't recognize it. I can remember being a storyteller as a little kid. And um, I wholeheartedly, I refuse to give in to evil. I just refuse. Mm -hmm. And so I went from there, and I had this marvelous conversation with Michael Conley at Thriller Fest in New York. And he, I grew up in California, so I knew L.A., and we began talking about it, Bosch and his characters and the locations and all this stuff. 
And he got real excited and he said, you need to get involved with the police department in your local area. So I did. And that led me on another path. And I just felt so compelled to write. And so I did. Now we all can face evil, you see, mm -hmm. and do it in a safe way and try to figure out some insights about that. And there's other learning that happens along the way. Having worked shoulder to shoulder with police officers, there's things I've learned and I can offer insights and do into the book that are very genuine and natural that just sort of happen. Mm -hmm. um, in Kill Notice, there was an officer that spoke with me and he said, you know, I always feel bad when I go take a lunch break and there's someone there, there's someone with a child, you know, a 10-year-old saying, you see that guy in, an, in the uniform? If you're not good, we're, he's going to arrest you and you'll never see me again, you know. And they just hate that. And so I've, I'm writing this story. I've got a good cop. Actually, I don't mind, by the way, I don't mind writing a bad cop as long as he gets his due. Right. Okay? Yes. Justice is a big thing to me. Um, and by the consequences of his own bad decisions. I always love that. Anyway, so this good cop is sitting in a restaurant. And I went, oh, this is perfect. So I set up the scene. And he goes over, and the kid is just trembling, you know, and teary-eyed. And, and the cop pulls out. It it's, looks like a badge, but it's a sticker. And it says, to serve and protect. And he starts talking with, do you know what this means? No. And so he says, look, I'm your friend. I'm here to protect you. That's my job. So when you're scared and you're afraid or you're lost or you need help, you look for somebody in this uniform and we will help you. You know, but I have no tolerance for anybody that someone once said to me, well, Police officers, they're all like, they cover each other's backs. They're all like brothers, right? That's true to a point, but what they aren't recognizing is nobody wants a loose cannon in the family. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, at least the departments I've worked with, if there's someone that's crossing the line, they're out very quickly. Um, and fellow officers do not rock with it at all, you know. And we're all fallible. We're all human, certainly. But I, it's, it's fun to put these little nuggets of understanding in, mm -hmm. you know. Officers don't go do a felony stop when it's just a routine traffic stop. They don't. They have a reason for doing it, and the reason is always safety, including the suspects. One of my dear friends is a former, he was a captain, old school captain, and he was in charge of SWAT. He was in charge of organ, the organized crime unit. And he said, Marta, when I go out, if anybody gets hurt, including the suspect, I call it a fail. My job is not to be judge, jury, and executioner. Mm -hmm. My job is to stop the danger, protect the public, and the court system can deal with the rest, you know. So it's, it's just interesting learning uh, the culture. Right. You know, and this is another part for people working on their craft. When you're dealing with police officers or any other field, Coast Guard, 
You want to do a swimmer in uh, the U.S. Coast Guard in the Bering Strait. It's not just the uniform. It's not just the helicopter or the, the equipment that they use. It's the culture of the job. Mm-hmm. It's the sacrifices. It's the little things that get under your skin. All of those things will bring a character to life. Absolutely correct. So then, writing for you, actually writing novels, and you've written a dozen? Oh, ten? gosh. I've written, yeah, probably around that. Most of them won't see at the light of day because they're a different genre. Mm-hmm. And like many authors, when you first start out, you're learning craft and you're figuring out which genre really fits for you. You know, and I've done all kinds of things. Um, there is a, uh, a little short story that has nothing to do with thrillers, which is why it's not on my website or anything. It's called Latte Alliance. And it's the story of two women who are dear friends and one of them gets Alzheimer's. And Saturday Evening Post um, accepted that into the Great American Fiction Contest and decided to put it in their anthology, the best short stories for that particular year, which was really an honor, and it was wonderful. And it's a breathtaking story about how friendship can even transcend something like Alzheimer's. And it's these two women that always used to sit out on the patio and talk to each other and watch the stars and stuff like that. And, but it's learning craft. See? Right. And so all of that, I think sometimes as a writer, you feel like you're writing millions of words and they're going in a black hole. They're not. They are, you are training your skill set to write the books you really want to write. And for me, it was thrillers. Um, I've also had the FBI's offered to open their files to me, which was a huge honor, Mm -hmm. um, if I'll tell their stories. So I'm now working also behind the scenes on starting a true crime series. So I will probably go back and forth between these two. (laughs) It'll be kind of fun. The true crime will still be fiction. No, the true True crime crime is going to be... Non-fiction. This is going to be honest FBI cases. But I do cross that line, and I'll tell you what, I'm start, I've started, I'm working on one right now, it's a short story, and it's a tie-in to the Bowers thriller series, mm-hmm. where Bowers is, she's a detective at Metro PD in Washington, D.C., so it's her time there. But the stories are fascinating because they come from retired detectives that are friends of mine that tell me about stories that haunt them. Wow. So what I do is I take the story and the parts that really make, you know, make your eyes go wide and the hair kind of go up on your arms, and I fictionalize it. So I protect the victims. I protect their families, um, all of that. So I fictionalize all that stuff. But the story itself is just spot on. And so, but I make it one of her stories, see? Oh, and so nice. it's, a lot, it's a lot of fun, and it's very satisfying, I think, to the detectives because, the, especially the one I'm working on right now, it's haunted him all of his career, and now he's retired, and it still bugs him. But to see that one coming out, it's just sort of a satisfying, yeah. 
You know, it's you like we sense, put it on closure. It's a sense of closure. That's exact, and that's why I do it. Mm-hmm. That's why I do it. So then, on as an author, then so you went from your career to then taking your 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 life stories, your life lessons, and, and then translating them into written words instead of just uh, the verbal words telling people stories. So in getting it going, what were some of the biggest obstacles you had to overcome as a writer to get into print, to get, you know, to achieve that? Oh, it's very hard. The writing world, the entertainment world is a brutal environment for everyone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, um, so I had started out thinking I would do traditional publishing, and I may at some point. Uh, but what happened was I had a marvelous agent, John Silbersack, uh, just infamous. I mean, you couldn't get better than mm-hmm. John. He's just an amazing man, amazing human, highly skilled at what he does. But New York at the time, and I, I understand, they're trying to sell as many books as they can. And so just like you had the Harry Potter period where everything had to be wizards and stuff, Mm -hmm. and then you had the Stephanie Meyer period where everything had to be vampires, well, New York was in this thing about women writers. And John said to me, Marta, if your name was George and you were six foot four and wore fatigues, we wouldn't be having this conversation, but they want you to write domestic thrillers. Now, I don't write domestic thrillers. I have no interest in writing domestic. And that doesn't mean it's, it's bad. Yeah, it's just not your gig. Right. I don't write romance novels, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Other people do a great job at that. They're the ones that do that, not me. Mm-hmm. I do these. And it's kind of fun because there's a deliberate thing I do in that my books are written for men as well as women. And there are things women will see in the book that guys don't and things guys will really appreciate, that women just, they enjoy it. They, you know, don't have a problem with it. But a lot of guys feel, they read it, and it's like somebody's giving them a wink. I get you, man, you know, kind of thing. And so it's really fun to hear both sides really enjoying it. And that, that's where my heart is. That's the way I write. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to change all that to fit some trend. I think we as writers, it's important for us not to chase trends. It's important for us to blaze trails. Good. If it happens to be a trend, that's fine. If it's not a trend, oh, yeah. it's just... If you're in that groove, I'll go for it. Yeah. But don't make somebody try to dictate where your real talents shine and where your heart is, because that's where you'll do your best writing. Good, good. So... In terms of then obstacles you had to overcome as a writer to getting your books in print. Mm. So New York didn't appear to be where I needed to be. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you run into these roadblocks, they're not roadblocks. They're signs directing you towards where you really need to be. So I started uh, looking into the self-publishing Mm-hmm. But I wanted to do it right. So I got professional editors. My covers are done by Stuart Bache, who used to do Stephen King's covers. So everything is very, very 
professional all the way through. And this was the best decision I could have made. So instead of getting locked in as a debut author or mid-list author with a not-so-great cover and no marketing, now I have control. I can deliver a product to readers that's top shelf. And I kind of like that. Sure. And so um, the obstacles now for me, I call it alligators. So every time I pull an alligator out of the pond, there are two attached to its tail. So it's a learning curve. You've got to figure out your mailing list and your website. And you've got to figure out how you're going to publish. For me, I do print, I do ebooks, and Eduardo Ballerini. He is, is amazing. My, he's voice. amazing. He is like, that's the score of scores you got with oh that. Oh my gosh. Hearing him do Island of Bones and Kill Notice just sets you back, you know, and he does such a good job. And I'll tell you, he's the nicest man. He's very nice. He's done some of our audiobooks too. He is so yeah. gracious and he does such a superb job. You could have five guys in a room talking. And the way he changes his voice and pacing and cadence and everything, oh, my gosh, you know who's talking. Mm -hmm. And I said, Eduardo, I can understand as an actor playing the role of a character. But when you're narrating, you're playing all of them. And you pull it off. And he just chuckled. He's a very humble guy, you know. Yeah. No, he's (laughs) He's he's amazing. Truly, truly. It's wonderful. Yes. All right, so then going to, um, you didn't go the indie route, you went self-publishing route. I did. I did. And, and you're staying self-publishing. I am. I am. Um, I like being, and it, it's out of respect for readers. I, you know, Dave Farland was a mentor, a friend, and my editor. And we all know he passed away recently. Mm. Dave believed in me, but the more important part is he taught, when I was at his funeral, there was a wooden sign carved in wood, you know, this carving, and it said, believe. That's what David did for us. He taught us to believe in life, Mm -hmm. believe in ourselves, believe in goodness, and believe in our work. And... He gives a lot of people the courage to be those trailblazers. And I see a whole group of new writers coming up that are taking charge, making sure they have good covers, good editing, good writing, and they are delivering a product to readers that is superior to the the old school that used to work 20 years ago but doesn't quite work so well now. Mm-hmm. So it would be hard for me to settle on mediocre, you know? Sure. I don't want to do that to readers. Sure. It's a commitment. When you're a writer, you're committed to those readers for delivering something worth their time. You know, if they're going to listen to a nine-hour audio, I want it to be worth their time. If Mm -hmm. they're going to spend two days, three days a week, whatever, reading a book, I want it to be worth their time. This is amazing. That's so, that's so true. And that's a lot of what was um, 
the Rise of Future contest was created yes. on that basic premise. So how familiar are you with, with the contest? Obviously, Dave won in volume three, and he was the coordinating judge, and he was, um, I mean, he really even novelized one of Elwin Hubbard's uh, screenplays, yeah. you know, and yeah. earned a Guinness World Record for it as well, for the longest uh, book signing. But how familiar are you with, with Writers of the Future in terms of what um, you see from it and its value? Oh, I think its value is enormous. Okay, so I will admit to you that I write thrillers, but I am an avid reader, and I have read Tolkien and many of the, the giants. Um, and I really admire what Writers of the Future is doing because I see them as supporting the new generation of writers that are coming up and making great strides. And I love the whole premise of it. Mm -hmm. And Dave spoke so highly of it. And I figured if he would put that kind of time, and I know what he went through to be a judge and to look at story and uh, to select things that are really uh, worth the awards, and I, I've talked to a lot of writers who have entered, and they've learned so much in the process, mm -hmm. you know. And even just winning the contest, it doesn't keep you just as a science fiction or fantasy writer. I'm, I'm getting ready to uh, interview Elizabeth Wayne. Oh. Um, she's got a, her current book, Codename Verity, uh -huh. and definitely not science fiction or fantasy, but that's how she got her, her break. And there's been various... Um, writers who started with that and writing is writing so the, the reason why writing I'm is writing is even though this is not science fiction or fantasy by any stretch of anything you know mm -hmm. and there's no pretension that it is but it's great storytelling and whether you're writing science fiction fantasy mystery adventure uh, great storytelling is it stands the test of time and it's interesting there's a lot of Storytelling isn't necessarily your slicks, your your fancy, your um, your literature, you know. Oh yes. You know, and yes. I don't know how much you've been challenged with the, you know, it's just, you know, general fiction. It's not literature, and and uh, Owen Howard used to write about that quite a bit too because he did all the pulp stuff. But it's interesting that his stories have survived the test of time. As, Absolutely. You know. Um, but the stuff that came out in the Saturday Evening Post back then, like, what was that? You know, it, it yeah. doesn't have that anymore. Yeah. So you said you were familiar with him as an author. Any particular books or stories that you read of, of Hubbard's? Oh, my gosh. It's been a while. I've certainly read some of Dave's books. Um, I, I know that I have read them. I have been so deeply focused in the thriller genre. Um, okay. That I mean, he, he, see, he wrote... The science fiction and fantasy, which is the mm -hmm. last genre, so that's what he's sure. most known for as a fiction writer. But his book, uh, Fear, is, you know, Anthony Boucher and Stephen King and pretty much most of the, the major mm -hmm. uh, horror writers owe a, say we owe a debt to, to Hubbard for this because this was like the, the father of... of um, the psychological thrill, the psychological horror, sure. which up to that point had been the slash and gash, you know, mm -hmm. the knives and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> but then when he came out, it was a psychological thriller that was like, 
he said, this could happen to anybody, you know? Yes, and, absolutely. Um, Steve, you mentioned Stephen King. He, um, he is someone that I have so much admiration for. And it's not the horror. Um, a lot of his books, including uh, Under the Dome, if you saw my copy of Under the Dome, you'd laugh. It is so dog-eared, and it has all these sticky notes in it. And what I did is I learned so much from Stephen's writing how to create a character that's real, just a normal person in this situation. Mm -hmm. And he did some fascinating things with how he would set up something five, ten scenes back. I loved how he—it's these subtleties— and one of the things I loved about him is he would write a particularly gruesome scene, but he wouldn't leave the reader just in shock with that. He'd immediately pull them back into the book with something uh, of compassion, something that triggered that compassion emotion. Mm -hmm. And it kept the reader from going, oh, yuck, and closing the book. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I, I really loved that. Um, Dave edited Island of Bones, and uh, a few days ago, I was looking at the manuscript, because he put all these notes in it, and I kind of miss him. Sure. And that's an understatement, of course. But I was rereading the little notes he put in the, the margin, and I got to the end, and he compared my characters in their voice and how I write with Shakespeare and Stephen King. And it just, it meant so much. It meant so much. And we all keep working on mm. having those characters. And I'd also advise that when you're writing, take the reader right behind the eyeballs of the POV character and have your characters have different voices. Like how so? Well, all right, so... Dave used to speak about neuro-linguistic programming. And what it really comes down to is people perceive the world in different ways. Some of us are very visual. Some of us are very audio. Some of us are kinetic. Um, we have... Ev everything hits your emotion. Does it feel right? You know? And so what I do in writing is I use all five senses in the writing, of course. But then I go further. Mm -hmm. I have a visual character. I have another character that's audio. I have another character that's kinetic, meaning they, they, they approach the world with how they feel about all these things. And they're very sensitive to textures and things like that. And I make that part of how that character operates. And what happens is 40% um, of the world's visual, 40% is audio, 20% is kinetic. And we all feel those things, you know, yes, do we, mm. does a visual person hear? Of course. But you put that focus in, and what happens is that you find a bond with the reader because it relates to them. That's and great advice on that. It's, it's wonderful. So, yeah, it, it's things like that that, that I've learned from, from Dave, from Stephen, from others. Okay. So what's, I'm just curious now, have you had any particularly bad advice or things that look at just don't oh, fall yes. for this one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Is, this is a really tough one for me. I met 
um, a Texas Ranger. And let me set this up. Most of us have seen The American Sniper. Most of us, or the book, Mm -hmm. you know. um, uh, Chris Kyle and uh, Chad Littlefield were murdered by Eddie Ray Ruth. This is a real deal. And Chris was a wonderful man. So was Chad. He was a really good guy. And their families um, and their sacrifices with Iraq and everything. I, I really have compassion for them. I was asked to write um, a true crime story about the investigation into Chris and Chad's murder. And I jumped into it. I thought, yep, I'd love to do this to honor Chris and his family for what they've been through and Chad and his family. And I put 120 hours of research in, did all these FOIA requests, getting records the direct records um, and everything, and um, worked up a collaborative, even spoke with Kevin J. Anderson on collaboration to make sure we got this right. Got an attorney, got a a contract, and uh, my my co-writer wouldn't sign it. And he kept hemming and hawing. And then at one point, it became very clear, he sent me a new contract written by his attorney, where he got all the rights, all the recognition, um, even copyright. So if we're halfway through this and he dies, I'm done. And then he wanted a 90-10 split. Was he a big-name author? Mm-mm. He was, I think he was well-meaning, but he did not understand the writing world. So he wanted me to write the book, do all the research, write the book, pay for all the editing, and he had no idea what costs go into creating a book, do all the quarries, do synopses. Which this is a Texas Ranger. Yes. Okay. He, well, he'd never, he didn't know what a quarry was. He didn't know what a synopsis was. He just, it's not his field. Right. I'd trust him with my life if there was a bad guy after me. <laughs> but this is a different world. And right. he didn't even know he needed an agent and how to approach a publisher. And all. But I was to do all of this for 10%. Well, heck, royalties being what they are, it I'd already happen. blown yeah. that much yeah. just in the research I'd done and legal fees. So I uh, politely said, no, not going to do it. Sorry. Good. So that was that. And that, I think that's important for writers. Um, don't give away the store. You know, your time and your writing is valuable. Don't let it be waylaid by anything. Be Use discipline. I have to, mm-hmm. because the world will overtake you. But set si- time aside to write, no matter what, and just do it. So how much do you... So that... We're getting, we're down to the last like four minutes or so. Okay. But in terms of, you just brought up a point which I normally ask and I didn't. What is your writing process? Like, how much time do you devote to writing? I can be, I can be very concise. Um, I I admit, I don't get writer's block. That would be like me getting at the top of a mountain and saying, I've got ski block. You know, no. (laughs) Writing is fun. I take the pressure off of me. Mm-hmm. I just delve into it and play, okay? Yeah. So what I do is I do my research. 
which gives me tons of ideas. Then I do an extensive outline. Then I rework the outline. And then I write the book fast. I write through it. But then I go through and I start molding and shaping and new ideas come in and I filter those in. So I kind of circle back and around and, and do that until I'm really, really satisfied. And then I'll have first readers read the book. I take in, um, if they see something, you know, Chris, you, you run, you've got to have good first readers, all right? And it doesn't need to be a professional in the field, just someone who loves the genre. Mm-hmm. So I will get some people to, I'll take their feedback. I'll measure what I know is right for the book. And people will frequently bring up, ah, I, I got to fix that. Yeah. And so when it gets on the page, it is not about my ego. It is about that story. And we have word processors for a reason. We can edit. And so we do all that, and then we work into the, the rest of it. But um, it's pretty straightforward. I, I'm not a super fast writer because I like to have a ton of depth in my stories. So I really put a lot of thought into making every scene the maximum it can be on all beats. Is, am I holding the tension? Where do I need some humor to kind of give us a breath, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these little funny things that happen to us, us in life, you'll see that sprinkled throughout. Right. You know, you'll just chuckle every once in a while, you know. And that's a good thing. So, that's great. So, you, so are you like two hours a day, five hours a day, or is it just— Oh, my gosh. Or you go through a whole cycle of research, and then when it's time to write, you just like— you're there for 24 hours. Unless I'm here um, at a, a convention or something, I would write— well, what happens is I start out in the morning to write, and I look up, and it's 10 hours later. Okay. I, I'm, I call it a latte-driven obsession. I cannot help it. I love writing. That's great. And then I squeeze the other stuff in as I need to. Okay, that's good. <laughs> well, this has been great. We've, um, we've run out of time here, but I said, after reading that first sentence in this book here, I knew I have to speak with you because it's Aww. going to be an amazingly fun interview, which it has absolutely been. <laughs> so. Wonderful. It's been such a pleasure for me, too. Great. I've enjoyed you, um, and I really enjoy other authors. I don't care if they're just starting to write their first short story or they have 153 books published. <laughs> yes, which is great. It really, it really, that shines through. Oh, good. Absolutely. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the United States, Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else via Amazon. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Marta. Thank you.